This episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge is sponsored by SeatBoost, an airline solution and technology platform that maximizes ancillary revenue by selling upgrades for expiring seat inventory. Visit SeatBoost.com slash AirlineWeekly to discover how they can help boost ancillary revenue. That's S-E-A-T-B-O-O-S-T dot com slash AirlineWeekly. They say a rising tide lifts all boats, but they don't say it lifts all boats equally. And we're seeing that hard truth play out in Europe right now. In the midst of a booming European economy, the big three airline groups are seeing results that range from okay to excellent. Air France KLM achieved an okay operating margin of 6% in 2017. Lufthansa, who finally reported fourth quarter earnings last week, had its best year ever financially with an 8% margin. That's solid, but not spectacular. And in the excellent column, we have IAG, the parent company of British Airways, Aer Lingus, Iberia, and Vueling. They posted a terrific 13% margin. That's almost as well as Delta did last year. So IAG has now established a fairly big separation between itself and the other two. Can Lufthansa close the gap? Can Air France KLM overcome its obstacles? Or is IAG a little bit like Delta, who consistently outpaces its rivals and seems to enjoy some built-in advantages? Those are the big topics today. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly, and joining me is our airline oracle, Seth Kaplan, the managing (laughs) partner of Airline Weekly. We'll also talk about how Aero, Mexico, and Volaris are dealing with too much capacity. We'll talk about United's pet project and two exciting comeback stories. Episode 93 of the Airline Weekly Lounge begins right now. Thanks for joining us. We're talking about the state of affairs in Europe, where we have a booming economy and some airlines that are sprinting along, IAG and Ryanair come to mind, while others like Lufthansa and Air France KLM are merely jogging. Seth, let's start with Air France KLM, the clear laggard of the big three. We did a cover story a little while ago about the hyper-competitive landscape in Paris. How much is that ailing Air France KLM? Oh, it's unhelpful for them. That's for sure. Yeah, when we were writing that cover story, I you know I didn't even realize that we ran the DO schedules um, to sort of rank Norwegian's biggest long haul bases from Europe to well, primarily uh, the U.S. Of course, they have a few Asian flights too. And yeah, uh, you know, number one, unsurprisingly, London Gatwick. Number two is Paris. Uh, you know, so so that's a that's a major focus for them. You've got Primera here, uh, another low cost long haul airline, getting ready to launch from Paris and elsewhere. Uh, and and you know what's what's different about Paris from London Heathrow, but also Gatwick, is that Paris doesn't have quite the same capacity constraints. Uh, you know, it's possible to add flights there. Um, you know, without paying a, a king's ransom for for uh, for a slot pair, uh, as you have to do at, at the main London airport. And so, yeah, that is uh, one uh, part of, of of the reason why Air France KLM is struggling. But um, let's recognize it's not just that. When we talk about the Air France side of the company, and that is the the, the one that's struggling more, you know, KLM is doing better. You know, it has cost problems too. So uh, it has 
revenue problems, yes, uh, related to the competitive landscape, but it's also a higher cost airline, uh, certainly than a uh, than a company like IAG. So, uh, yeah, kind of uh, money evaporating from the uh, from the bottom line because of both the cost and revenue side of the of the ledger. There are a lot of things going right for Air France KLM. Transavia finally earned at least a small profit. Demand is good. Fuel costs weren't too bad. Threats from the Gulf carriers have subsided. But nonetheless, Air France KLM and specifically Air France continues to essentially tread water. Is there a solution to be had? They're hoping so, and, and and certainly doing what they can. Uh, you know, first they're hoping for some some macroeconomic changes. Maybe we should say Macron uh, economic changes. Macron, the uh, the leader of of, of uh, France, who who's been trying to liberalize the economy, labor reforms, and so forth. But they're not just resting on on the hope of of, of labor reform uh, and and uh, some tax relief that they're hoping for. They've they've been very aggressive with the GDS surcharges. Uh, you know, the, the extra fees when somebody books through a global distribution system. Lufthansa did that first, but Air France KLM is doing it too. And that's both a, a revenue and a cost measure, right? Revenue, because if somebody does book through one of those channels, they pay more. Um, and it, it, to the extent that it pushes people to book uh, directly, well, then that then that saves the distribution costs. Uh, you know, too early to say if, if, if that's successful. They're there, there are some risks attached to that, but it, you know, but, but they're doing it. You know, joint ventures. This is a very strategically active airline. New joint ventures now with Vietnam Airlines and uh, Jet Airways of India. You know, it now owns uh, almost a third of Virgin Atlantic as part of yes, uh, another joint venture here. Uh, now, what used to be two joint ventures, one between Air France KLM and Alitalia and Delta, and separately Virgin Atlantic and Delta, a little messy. Delta sort of, you know, having uh, these competing partners across the Atlantic now becoming one joint venture. Uh, and so, you know, that too, a, a big opportunity. China Eastern continuing to become a more important partner. And then you have the lower cost platforms, uh, you know. June, the you know, which which uh, we'll we'll see how that goes, but um, you know, this is Air France trying to push more of its flying onto a lower cost platform. And you mentioned Jason Transavia, currently limited to forty planes in France. Air France KLM could you know, pursue getting that liberalized so it could do do more flying on that platform. Lufthansa did somewhat better than Air France KLM uh, with an eight percent margin in two thousand seventeen. That doesn't sound too impressive, but oddly enough, it was Lufthansa's best year ever. Seth, can you explain that a bit? Yeah, if ever there was an airline that's not a boom bust airline, uh, that airline would be Lufthansa. Uh, you, you know, it, it's it's yeah, its best year uh, certainly isn't as good as a lot of airlines' best years. But on the other hand, uh, it doesn't tend to have awful years. I mean, yeah, you said it, eight percent, Jason, in two thousand seventeen. I went back. I said, okay, let's see what they were doing a decade ago, two thousand seven. Very different world. You know, fuel prices on their way up toward their peak. The peak would come in 2008. Yeah, geopolitically and economically, the world was a different place then. But Lufthansa, right, 8% in 2017. Guess what they had in 2007? 7%, right? <laughs> and like just like fractionally different. Like 7, I think 7.2% it was. Yeah, here. Uh, and, and even the next year, 2008, was was a more challenging year because that's where you know fuel prices peaked, you know, 147 bucks a barrel uh, in the middle of the year. And then the global economy fell apart in uh, mid-September. And, uh, and Lufthansa, despite it all, 
at a 5% margin that year. You know, U.S. airlines, which, of course, right now are doing considerably better than Lufthansa, they were all in the red that year in 2008, you know, really struggling uh, to, to survive. And Lufthansa wasn't doing all that badly. So uh, it's, a, it's a steady as she goes airline. Um, uh, you know, we'll see if they can break out of that because you would like to see them, uh, to be clear, Jason, do better than that, considering how good the environment is in Europe right now. You know, you kind of feel like if you're ever going to be able to get to double digits, this would be a time to do that. And they've made a lot of positive steps. Do you think those steps will elevate the company from where it is now? Yeah, we'll see. You know, they they look. They have long term labor deals. Uh, that that's that's helpful. Uh, these are deals that um, that give it some pension relief, give the company some pension relief, and that actually save the company money. I mean, these are concessionary deals from the unions to the airlines. That's very different. Again, talking back uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, the U.S. airlines are giving big raises to their employees. Lufthansa says it's going to save $176 million on pilot costs alone, you know, not to mention uh, what it's getting from some of the other uh, unions. So, you know, so so they're doing a lot. Uh, they are rapidly growing Eurowings, that lower cost platform. You know, that that's becoming an ever more important part of the company. Now here too, I'll say it again, you know, is, is that necessarily a good thing? You know, Eurowings notched a two percent operating margin last year, so it was a drag on the company. So, you know, if it's going to continue to become an ever bigger part of the company, uh, it it needs to figure out a way to grow to grow profitably to you know to not cancel out. A, a unit like Swiss, which continues doing very well, Lufthansa itself, Lufthansa brands are flying doing fine. Cargo, a, a real standout now. That's one and a difference between Lufthansa and let's say IAG. Um, you know, IAG not as big of a cargo airline. Lufthansa, you know, Germany's a big exporter. Uh, cargo matters, and uh, that means when cargo is doing well globally, as it is right now, that, that's that's a good thing for Lufthansa. So, you know, they say all of this is uh, is just the beginning. You know, they say that you know, 2017, uh, 2017, there were issues that they still had to deal with that are behind them. You know, that they're just getting started. Um, although, if you look at their profit guidance now, hard, hard to say that 2018 will necessarily um, be markedly better than 2017. Next up is IAG, which as a group earned a fantastic 13% margin in 2017. This came despite Brexit concerns, despite Norwegian getting underfoot, despite congestion at Heathrow. I guess my first question is, what does IAG have that Lufthansa and Air France KLM don't have? Well, one thing you just mentioned it, Heathrow, you know, that that matters. That is, um, you know, a revenue rich capacity constrained airport, uh, unlike you know, any other in the world in, in many regards. And not just Heathrow, uh, the London market in, in general is, is, is the biggest market in the world. Um, you know, Paris is nice, but London's London's the biggest. So it's, it's, it's a different game for them. Uh, you know, when Transatlantic is doing well as it is right now, that's more important to them than it is to either of the other uh, of the big two European airline companies. And yeah, it's just they just can fill more of their flights with local travelers. I mean, you know, people, uh, you know, not just connecting in London, let's say from the US or from some, you know, Asia, what have you to somewhere else in Europe, but, you know, just truly bound for London. Those people are going to be paying revenue premiums for that. You know, they, they can get that. Uh, you know, when you see them start flights from, you know, London to, 
Austin or New Orleans, these places. Um, you know, it's easier to do from London than it is from uh, from other points in Europe because it's it, the, there's just more demand there. So yeah, on the revenue side, that's what they have. Uh, high demand, capacity constrained environment, and they also have lower costs. Say it's a thoroughly reformed uh, company to, after some hard fought battles uh, over the years. Uh, you know, some labor costs, but not only labor costs. Um, they've they've done a lot. Uh, in, in terms of in terms of uh, reforming themselves uh, in other ways, and so uh, yeah, it, it, a significantly more profitable airline than the others. We said in Airline Weekly how IAG has become, in some ways, the Delta of Europe. Do you want to explain that a bit? Yeah, well, if you think of some of the things I just mentioned, you know, Delta. When we talk about you know what are sort of their structural advantages, we say, well, Atlanta, you know, it's just a great hub, and then it's taken. You know, it's not like somebody else can go replicate what they're what they're doing there. Uh, yeah, I mean, Atlanta's different from London in many important ways, but it but it's a great hub, and Delta has that. It it has you know if you if you could start start an airline, uh, you know, a giant global airline in the U.S. you'd I start with Atlanta and IAG has the hub, uh, the hub city in, in London where, where you do that there. Also, you know, I mentioned the, the costs. I mean, yeah, IAG is just the lower cost, more nimble uh, company. Um, and that's true of Delta in the US. I mean, in Delta's case, it's a, a mostly non-union company too. That's that's not true of IAG. But yeah, it, it it's just a less messy company. Uh, then it's then it's big two competitors. So uh, add it all up, and and uh, yeah, it's kind of like Delta, where American and United, you know, they they'll make their moves and, and seem to nip at its heels, but they can't seem to overtake it uh, for a number of years now. We see IAG just just significantly more profitable than the others. Willie Walsh said recently, "We are not a legacy carrier." Why is he saying that? Probably for some of those reasons that that we just talked about. It's a lower cost airline. I mean, look, I've been to airline conferences over the years where people, and this is kind of quieted down, but you you, you go back about a decade, everybody would talk about well, what kind of airline is airline X? You know, is it is it a low cost airline? Is it a legacy airline? Oh, maybe it's a hybrid airline, kind of low cost and kind of legacy. You know, you ask me what what defines a low cost airline. And of course, people in their minds have you know the the, the attributes that tend to characterize a low cost airline. But you ask me what what makes a low cost airline? I say, an airline with low costs, right? And so when you see IAG's short haul product, and then this is also changing at Lufthansa and Air France KLM, but you know, short haul planes at maximum density, you know, not serving free meals, not you know, providing advanced seat assignments and all the kinds of things that they're doing for uh, you know for, for for most passengers anyway. I don't know. Like, it sounds like a low cost airline to me, regardless of of uh, you know what's what's painted on the tail. Um, and so I don't mean look, they, they're, they're, their costs will never approach those of you know Ryanair's or anything like that. But uh, but but I think that's what he means. Um, that it's just you know it's just a far different company from what it was uh, not too many years ago. Don't forget, by the way, that, that it actually has a what has generally been um, a, a successful low cost unit of its own in whaling so when you see uh, you know Lufthansa trying to get Euro wings going and you see Air France KLM struggling with you know is it going to be June or you know expand Transavia or all these things that you know that you know we'll see let's take a moment to thank our sponsor seat boost. 
Seatboost combines a highly engaging mobile user experience with top-notch experiential marketing to sell upgrades and boost ancillary revenue. With Seatboost, airlines gain robust data insights and maximize revenue on last-minute upgrade sales, whether it's first class, business class, or premium economy upgrades. Visit seatboost.com slash airlineweekly to discover how they can help boost ancillary revenue. I want to stay in Europe for one more question, and that's Virgin Atlantic. With transatlantic flights doing so well, I would think Virgin would be booming, but it's not the case, is it? Yeah, a net loss, actually, Jason, of, of $62 million for 2017. Uh, uh, Virgin's not a publicly traded company, so it doesn't you know, publish quarterly results and, and uh that doesn't even give an operating uh, uh, result, but um, but anyway, no, that that that's clearly disappointing considering the environment. Uh, half of that, by the way, flows to Delta's bottom line because Delta owns forty nine percent of the airline. And yeah, Virgin said basically three things went wrong. It has a heavy dependence on Caribbean markets. And we all know what happened with hurricane season last year. Very disruptive uh, for for an airline disproportionately exposed to that part of the world. Then you had the weak pound, currency issues, and uh, that depressed outbound uh, long haul demand because you know the world is just more expensive for um, for people who live in the UK. Uh, now it should help inbound demand, right? And it does. It seems that it, that just doesn't make up for the loss. I mean, London, typically speaking, uh, point of sale when you have a flight between London and somewhere else, more of the demand generally, uh, uh, I say London, UK in general, more of the demand generally originates in the UK. And so that was heard. And and, and of course, the, a weak local currency is always bad uh, on the cost side, uh, almost always bad because airlines buy important things in US dollars. Jet fuel is priced in US dollars. Aircraft uh, ownership, lease payment in US dollars. And so when your currency, when your local currency declines, uh, those things essentially become more expensive uh, for an airline. And uh, they were also rather exposed to engine issues with their Dreamliners. Uh, so then that caused them to kind of scramble and, and uh, you know find aircraft to be able to, to meet their flying schedule. Uh, yeah, so a, 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 a rough 2017 for Virgin Atlantic, but a lot to look forward to going forward. Uh, not least the uh, the same thing I said with Air France KLM, the, the fact that that joint venture with Delta is now uh, going to be one and all of those airlines now Virgin Atlantic with Air France KLM, Alitalia, if it remains part of it, and of course, Delta able to uh, plan jointly their their uh, transatlantic routes. Uh, you know, working uh, more closely with Jet Airways from India becoming an important partner. Of course, the market between India and, and the UK a, a, a huge one, and uh, so so that relationship too. Uh, helpful for Virgin Atlantic. We mentioned in Airline Weekly a couple of weeks ago that frequent flyer plans in Europe tend to have smaller memberships than those in the U.S. Why is that? Well, you know, first of all, the U.S. programs were um, they were around first. Now the European programs are not new anymore. But for what it's worth, you know, American invented it, right? Uh, Advantage was I think eighty one, eighty one or eighty two. Uh, it was first, so you know, it's part of it. It's just longer to accumulate members but yeah the european programs now around a while um and and yeah for for perspective um you know air france klm flying blue 30 million members that compares to about 100 million members at each of the big three u.s air uh, airlines you know american delta and united uh even though air france klm is a, a 
similar size company, just a bit smaller than those. So, uh, so yeah, why the disparity? Uh, like I said, you know, maybe partly that the U.S. programs were there first. A lot of it, though, is that the is that Europe is just more fragmented, you know, in terms of consumer brands. So we'll use that example, but it's not the only one. Air France, KLM, you know, just so much of their activity is concentrated in France and the Netherlands, right? You know, the brand awareness or brand relevance is just a lot less uh, elsewhere in Europe. Whereas for U.S. airlines, most of them uh, serve most of the U.S. The the whole market, uh, you know, they're obviously one country. Whereas Europe, it's many different countries, but but there you go. You know that's 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 the point. And consumer brands in general in Europe are just more fragmented by country. By the way, Canada is even more. It's kind of on the other side of the U.S. from that perspective. Uh, brands tend to be even stronger national brands there. When you talk about just various other kinds of consumer brands, supermarkets, and, and that sort of thing that are still regional in the U.S. But airlines in general in the U.S. Pretty widespread brand uh, recognition from uh, from sea to shining sea, uh, and and uh, and that helps uh, these loyalty programs. And Seth, I know this isn't a main focus of Airline Weekly's coverage, but because you've been all over the mainstream media talking about it, I want to ask you about United's recent issues with uh, animals and their decision to stop accepting all animals for transport in the cargo holds. Yeah, that decision uh, following. A string of incidents. Uh, most tragically, there was a, a French bulldog, Coquito, who died in an overhead bin. A flight attendant had, had insisted that the carrier be be placed up there where there's no airflow. You know, she apparently didn't realize there was a dog in there. But anyway, uh, there was that. And then you, know, then you just start hearing about a dog that was, you know, that ended up in Tokyo by accident and, and, and all kinds of other things. And so, yeah, so they've said that, you know, that basically, uh, unless you have a reservation already, unless you had a reservation before this announcement for a cargo pet, uh, no new reservations. They'll honor reservations until May 1st, and they're going to rethink the whole thing. To be clear, that wouldn't have helped Coquito because that that's that's a that's a cabin animal and they're still accepting those. Although for those, they are uh, now going to have these these bright tags on the carriers that hopefully should identify and uh, don't put that in the overhead bin. And uh, for, for cargo animals, we'll see. They say they're doing a big review. Uh, United, you know, they're a really important airline for, for people who fly with certain breeds around the world. They're, they're, they, they will carry animals that Delta and American won't carry. And so you have, for example, military families, U.S. military families who uh, who travel around the world on United with their breeds of, of animals, dogs, for example, that, that they can't send them on any other airline. The reason the other airlines don't accept them is because they are higher risk. Uh, dogs with short noses, um, just you know, not really designed biologically to fly as safely as others. And so you hope that they can find a way to keep serving those people, you know, to, but of course, as as uh, as safely as possible. I don't know. I think you know, maybe maybe just have them sign an additional waiver, right? Understanding that, that, that there is that higher risk. You know, some people, you know, sometimes there are no good choices, just bad ones and worse ones. And, uh, you know, let, let's see if they can find a, a solution that that works for everybody, including uh, those uh, those families and, and their dogs. Let's check in on Mexico. Results haven't been great there lately. Aeromexico posted a 4% operating profit margin for 2017. That was down from 7% the year before. One thing they're trying is aggressive international expansion. Seth, how's it working? 
I mean, look, airlines don't release their market by market profit and and and, and loss results, right? So um, it's it's difficult to say for sure. But I will say, I mean, everybody's doing worse in Mexico than they than they were. But Aero Mexico's margin declines have been less than those of, let's say, you know, Volaris, who I know you want to talk about. Also, you know, I mean, there could be other reasons for that, but it tells you that perhaps you know they have been able to find salvation abroad, uh, and and there's a lot lot that's changing about their long haul flying. I mean, they're, you know, this this is an airline that uh, they they just retired their last 777. You know, they're a Dreamliner airline. And that, yeah, that's, we've talked in the past on here about New Zealand and, and Australia, how airlines there, you know, Qantas Air New Zealand have really benefited from those Dreamliners. Aeromexico is another where it just kind of seems to be the perfect plane for them in terms of the range, getting out of a you know, high airport like Mexico City, and then uh, you know, not too big a plane to fill the the operating economics, all the rest of it. Um, so they seem to have really taken advantage of that, and so uh, so yeah, it's doing quite well apparently relative to everything that's uh, that's going on in the world that's not favorable. Talking about uh, you know the weak peso, uh, the geopolitical and economic issues between the U.S. and uh, and and Mexico, and all uh, all the rest of it. Not to mention competitive issues now that yeah, there's open skies between the U.S. and Mexico. So uh, yeah, doing well. Uh, don't forget though, they also now have that joint venture with Delta. So you know, uh, any any improvements here going forward, that probably is going to account for some of that as well. Meanwhile, Volaris, which shares the same business model as Frontier, Wizz Air, Ryanair, and Spirit, is not seeing the same level of profits than its peers are. Uh, the airline broke barely broke even in 2017. Yeah, just uh, just right, barely in the black, down from what. Uh, 11% a year earlier in uh looking at that right yeah uh, actually 12% 11.7 rounds to 12% a year earlier and so there you go that that's a that's a far steeper decline than what Aero Mexico uh experienced uh and so basically yeah i mean they couldn't run from the challenges you know they can't fly to china Let's say, uh, and and so so yeah, they're exposed to all of it. Um, they like Aeromexico said, uh, you know, family visit traffic between the U.S. and Mexico is is uh, is soft. Uh, you know, yeah, not not enjoying the same kinds of uh, results that you mentioned. Those other ultra low cost carriers around the world are are enjoying, and so um, yeah, we'll have to see if they can. Uh, Kind of get their get their hands around that, you know. And this is remember all this happens as Mexico has an upcoming presidential election, and they you know there's there's a populist candidate uh, Amlo as he's known uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who is uh, yeah some people call him the Mexican Trump. We'll 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 see what happens in terms of. Uh, you know, perhaps more protectionism, perhaps, uh, you know, markets closing. You'd hope for airlines on both sides of the border not to be threatened by sort of, you know, now that they've had some of those hard-won gains in terms of opening up the market. But um, but a lot of uncertainty. Having said that, they you said it, a model that tends to work. Um, and an airline that has had a lot of uh, success 
uh, in its early years. So uh, it wouldn't bet against Volaris, but uh, no question they've, they've fallen on hard times. Let's finish the show with two comeback stories. The first is Turkish Airlines, which returned to profitability in 2017. The airline had a slight loss in the fourth quarter, but it was so much better than the year before that it enabled Turkish to post a 7% operating profit margin on the year. Yeah, and, and uh, that's a dramatic turnaround. You know, if you think of uh, other markets that uh, let's say the European markets that that suffered because of uh, terrorism, Paris and Brussels. You know they fell and they came back. Uh, but but Turkish, I mean, we're talking about you know negative four percent operating margin for uh, 2016. Uh, they turned that, as you said, into a seven percent uh, operating profit margin for um, for 2017. So so a big turnaround. You know they did a good job when things were bad. I mean, first of all, they slowed uh, their their growth for a while. Uh, really focused on six freedom uh, traffic. That's you know people connecting between two other countries, you know, who never actually set foot in Turkey, uh, you know, other in the in the airport. Uh, it's low yield traffic tends to be, but, you know, it's a way to fill your planes when you've got a network like theirs. Uh, and now that tourism is, is recovering uh, to Turkey, uh, yeah, they're they're as well well poised as uh, as well positioned as anybody to uh, take advantage of that. You know they've they've they're they're back in growth mode. Uh, you know they're saying they could have as many as 500 aircraft by 2023. That would be up from uh, just a little over 300 at the start of uh, this year. They've got 737 Max 8s, uh, A320 Neos, Max 9s coming soon, and then uh, Dreamliners and A350s. Um, so an airline that's growing. Once again, growing more quickly uh, and and with profits to show for it. Saving the best for last, we should talk about Copa's terrific 18% operating profit margin in the fourth quarter. It feels like they are finally fully back from the Brazilian recession. Yeah, that's remarkable. Um, that uh, 18% is, I'm just double checking this. Uh, yeah, it's the highest in the world among all airlines that have reported. Now, their fourth quarter is, is more of a peak quarter. So, you know, if you look at at the full year, uh, you know there there are a few airlines that that did do better, but not many. I'm just looking here now, you know, uh, Ryanair, the Hawaiian, uh, you know, it's it's uh, Allegiant. Yeah, not too many. You know, they're they're back up there toward the top of the chart. That's really remarkable. You know, you you wondered when they fell from, and they 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 previously were among the world world's most profitable airlines, and you just wondered if they would never quite get back there. But yeah, it, it just didn't take long, did it? Uh, they're another one of those airlines, kind of like what I said by about uh, IAG earlier, and you say, well, what are they? You know. Um, I mean, they don't look like an LCC in the sense of you know they have they have a business class cabin and they have you know you know lounges and, and all the rest of it. But uh, but in the end, they're they're you know what makes a low cost carrier a low cost carrier? Well, they have they have low costs. They have they have considerably lower cost than their competitors. You know, it's they're an all narrow body airline. With those are overrepresented among the top uh, most profitable airlines in the world, and they've just got a really well positioned hub uh, to connect cities uh, between North America, Central South America. Yeah, it's uh, there. They are once again um, really remarkable how quickly they they reestablished them as a uh, as as a profitability juggernaut. All right, well that concludes the comeback portion of the show <laughs> and it concludes the episode itself. This uh, episode 93 of the Airline Weekly Lounge. For Seth Kaplan, I'm Jason Cottrell. Thanks for spending some time with us. This episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge was sponsored by Seatboost. Visit seatboost.com/airlineweekly and discover how they can help boost ancillary revenue. That's S-E-A-T-B-O-O-S-T dot com slash airline weekly.